Wastoids is now playing on our favorite streaming service, Night Flight Plus. Check out our four-episode anthology series, Baked and Fried in the Sonoran Desert and New York City. It features some of our favorite live performances from bands like Wednesday, Super Crush, Portrayal of Guilt, Reptalians, and more, plus oddball skits, video segments, and more demented fun. Check out nightflight.com backslash promo code and enter Wastoids in all caps for $10 off your annual subscription. Wastoids is a lo-fi fever dream, and it's only available on Night Flight Plus. This is Wastoids. This is Wastoids. This is Wastoids. This is Wastoids. are listening to Wastoids. Well, actually, you are listening to Harry Nilsson on Wastoids. I'm Jason Woodbury, and we are so excited to share the following presentation. It's geared towards the hardcore Harry heads out there. It's an in-depth conversation with Olivia Nilsson. Along with her siblings, she oversees the Harry Nilsson estate, and we were so psyched to have her sit down for a two-part conversation about her dad's work. From his interest in science fiction, to his musical innovations, to his obsession with Watergate, uh, we tried to shine a light on some lesser explored corners of Nilsson's life and work, and we're so thankful to Olivia for sharing her time and memories with us. If listening to this chat leaves you wanting more Nilsson, and we certainly hope that's the case, we want to recommend John Shinfield's fantastic documentary, Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? which just returned to Amazon Prime. Thanks for checking out Nilsson Talks Nilsson with Olivia Nilsson. Here's our conversation. Thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Wastoids, Olivia. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, so as we discussed a little bit in part one of our podcast talk, um, your dad wasn't you know, the exact same person who he always played on record. He he was uh, more private and, and there was a whole side of him that we didn't get to see. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what your memories are like uh, of growing up. I believe you were, were you, were you 10 when he passed away? Yeah, that's right. Um, so you have some, you have some memories of yeah. him, I imagine. I mean, my memories are all um, very positive. Just, he was a loving father. He was very interested in us, and he was very interesting. Um, you could tell, I guess, the passion that he had for life. I have a memory of him always trying to teach us things. Uh, so <laughs> when I say that, what I mean is literally trying to teach us like math and science concept. And as again, as we talked about in the in the first interview, he didn't have a lot of formal education, um, but he was self taught. Uh, there are some friends of his from the 60s who said he loved, he was interested in the law and he would bring law books to parties and uh, get people into <laughs> debates about questions of the law. Um, so he just, he loved, he was a sponge for information. And I think he tried to pass that down to us and, and share with us as much as he could. As a 10 year old or, or younger, I imagine you weren't always interested in the lessons. Well, I I was always interested in talking to my dad, but I probably yeah. couldn't absorb the the math concepts. Specifically, he was trying to teach me a, a trick he could do in his head, which was if you told him your birthday, 
he could tell you what day of the week you were born on. Um, oh, just wow. By doing this very quick calculation in his head. And that was a party trick that he would do over the years. So a lot of people who crossed paths with him in the 60s and 70s remembered him doing that. Um, and he tried to teach me, but I'm afraid I, I didn't retain the formula. You know, what's funny is I, I'm imagining now being in a, a a room with him and him asking me and him telling me, you know, what day mm-hmm. I was born. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if I remember what day I was born, so maybe he could say any date and I would believe him, which would be impressive <laughs> Impressive enough, you know yeah. what I mean? If he says it with confidence, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I was definitely born on a Wednesday. <laughs> well, something that we alluded to a little bit in our first chat was that um, in addition to your dad being a pioneer of the sort of like mashup in 1971, uh, so just around the same time of The Point being released, he released Aerial Pandemonium Ballet, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which was a a remix album, essentially, where he's combining different elements and singing new parts and, and just creating a whole new work out of, you know, previously recorded material, which this becomes a commonplace practice as time goes on, mm-hmm. remixing. Do you know what, what made your dad interested in that as a as a potential thing? The Beatles also being, you know, cut up artists in their own way and, and sort of like engaging in some sort of avant-garde techniques. Was that sort of where your dad was coming at it from? I think there were probably a few motivations there. One is that the technology had progressed. So there was more he could do with the material in the studio um, at that time than he could when he first recorded it. Also, I think he had gained a lot of confidence as an artist after putting out his first two records and having the hit with Everybody's Talking and getting the acclaim from his peers and getting to meet the Beatles. He was just much more confident as an artist and I think interested to go back and see what he could tinker with um, to make it more consistent with you know his artistic vision at that moment. Also, he had a bit of a perfectionist streak. He loved recording multiple takes of everything. Uh, we know mm. from people who were with him in the studio. And he loved listening back to what he was working on and refining it. So that is uh, demonstrated there as well. Well, so um, something that's happened over the last couple of years was Gotta Get Up became a whole new, a whole new generation got turned on to that song when it was mm. featured over and over again in the Netflix show Russian Doll in, in 2019. Did you experience an influx of new people being interested in your dad after that show came out? And what was that like? Yeah, we did notice that. And it was so cool because that song, it wasn't one of the singles from that record. I mean, it was a a B-side, but it wasn't one of the top songs people necessarily associated with Nilsson. But when people heard it in Russian Doll, it's such an earworm. Um, It really got in people's heads. And a lot of new people... We're figuring out, you know, who Harry Nilsson is just from that song. So there's definitely an increase in streams of the song and just interest in him online. Um, and I think a great gateway for people to figure out, um, you know, the rest of his catalog. You know, as at, at as of the time that we're recording this right now, um, Kate Bush is experiencing this incredible renaissance of interest in her work due to her uh, placement in the show Stranger Things. Mm. Um, And so, one, I think it's fascinating to consider the way that film and television, you know, can play such a role in terms of people getting turned on to to music. But as we talked about in the first episode of this conversation, 
uh, Midnight Cowboy was a huge thing. So it's like television and film, it's always sort of been a part of the the saga. But it's just interesting mm-hmm. the way it can come back now, you know? And yeah. that you, as, a fa- as, as, the, as the estate, you have this opportunity to potentially reach new audiences through unexpected avenues. Yeah, and I, I think um, there wasn't that much of that in my dad's lifetime. Um, I believe he was still alive when the request came in to use his song Coconut in the closing credits of Reservoir Dogs, uh, the Tarantino Mm. film. And so I believe he was pleased, you know, they were, they were interested in using that song. I've heard from the music supervisor on that film, whose name is Karen Rachtman. Um, and she said she was, um, so excited to be able to like reach out to Nilsson personally and talk to him about how they, how they wanted to use it. And he was really excited. Um, but then a lot of the interest from filmmakers came after his death. Um, some of your listeners might be familiar with the movie You've Got Mail, um, the Nora Ephron film, which uses a ton of Nilsson songs, both originals and covers. It's a, a beautiful cover of him singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, for example. Um, and that's that movie is a perennial favorite. And so it keeps um, reintroducing people uh, to Nilsson. And then there's the great usage in Goodfellas with Jump Into the Fire, that great scene with Henry Hill uh, <laughs> running from the helicopters and stirring the sauce. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if ever a song had been, you know, there's no better suited to like a deranged sort of action (laughs) scene than that song. Such a good one. Yeah. Obviously, Popeye was a big part of it, though, too. Uh, And Altman, you know, worked with your father. That's a soundtrack that has seen an interesting second life in that the movie uh, was not a big success at the time of its release. And um, I have my own feelings that it is in its own way pretty great um i think it's pretty great and but obviously you know uh, the music that was made for that movie has sort of lived a whole second life you know and been involved in punch drunk love and stuff so it's interesting the way that that film has played such a role in in your dad's in your dad's work yeah the popeye movie is an interesting example because i believe the movie got panned when it came out uh, but people are still watching it and many people grew up seeing it um, being played endlessly on TV. Uh, so they, yeah. I think it was introduced to a younger audience um, who, who grew up with it and, and love it. And then the songs, um, my dad's original demos for those were released officially for the first time a few years ago. And those are so special to listen to because you can really hear his creative process as he's going into it and what he was trying to do with the characters. There's a beautiful song there with him teaching Shelley Duvall how to sing the song He Needs Me, which he sings, she mm. sings so beautifully in the film. So, I mean, those things have stood the test of time and are worth revisiting. Yeah, I've got, I've got that, that soundtrack with the, with the demo versions. I think it came out on Record Store Day, if I remember right, or mm-hmm. one of the, one right, of the yeah. Record Store Days, yeah, mm-hmm. which, is, which is so cool. Well, in addition to Gotta Get Up uh, having this whole new uh, resurgence in 2019, as we alluded again in the previous conversation, your dad being a big sci-fi fan, he probably would have enjoyed that there was a cool science fiction show or something like a science fiction show featuring his uh, his tune. But mm-hmm. in 2019, uh, Omnivore Recordings released Lost and Found, uh, your father's final album, stuff mm-hmm. that was recorded really, I mean, when we say just before his death, we mean really just before his death, right? Maybe yeah. the, even the day before, is that right? I think some of those vocal takes were recorded in the, his last week of life. Some might have been recorded yeah. earlier. It was snippets of things he had worked on 
for the last few years of his life. Um, but in the last year of his life in particular, when he knew how sick he was, he really wanted to put out some new music because he had been referring to himself as a retired musician uh, for the better part of a decade at this point. He hadn't been putting out records. So this was a real turn for him. Suddenly, he realized he didn't have much time left and he wanted to put out more material. He had that creative drive um, back again. Uh, I The album's tentative title uh, was... Uh... Papa's got a brand new robe, I believe, at that point, which is a great title. <laughs> yeah, a brown new robe, I think. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. is it is it brown new I, robe? I, I, okay. That's what I thought. But I mean, he loved puns. He loved, you know, just yeah. playful album titles. That was a, <laughs> a big thing for him. Well, producer Mark Hudson, he held on to those tapes that your dad had made, those recordings, mm, yeah. essentially, mm-hmm. for something like nearly 25 years before yeah. it was eventually released. How did the actual process of of completing the album kick off? And and when did you sort of become aware of um, that project? Well, I believe um, the producer, Mark Hudson, he assembled a group of musicians, uh, some of whom knew my dad. So I I know um, Jim Keltner and and Jimmy Webb played on it. My brother, Kifo Nilsson, played on it. I don't remember the exact date, you know, that I became aware that it was going to be coming out. Sure. But definitely a, a passion project. If you read... Um, the liner notes that Mark Hudson wrote, he kind of writes a letter to my dad, a very a kind of emotional moment in which, you know, from his point of view, this is like fulfilling this dream my dad had. And um, so it's very sweet that it's finally out there. Um, and just interesting to see this window into his mind, you know, at that time. Um, and it's got many of the Nilsson trademarks. It's got the very sweet moments. It's got humor. Um and the title of it, Lost and Found, which they spell with uh, the double S's as you were referring to earlier, comes yeah. from a it comes from something my dad said in those last years of his life. He knew he w- was working on new music and he wanted he didn't have a record deal because he had been retired for a while. And he wanted to get another deal to put this record out. And he had a meeting with I believe it was Warner and they rejected him. They didn't they didn't want it. And I think he felt so he left that meeting and he, he was telling Mark Hudson, like, they don't understand. They they don't get it. They think I'm lost, but I was found. And so it's yeah. this really poignant moment in which he's, like, insisting on, on moving forward and putting that out, even without the backing of a label. As so often happens, you know, I, I remember watching that The Big Star documentary years back uh, about the power pop band and... They talked about how that band, famously plagued by uh, record industry, you know, like shenanigans and 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 bad promotion and spotty record distribution and all that. But there's a part at the end of that movie where somebody's talking, and they basically they basically say that you know if it's if it's good, eventually it will find its way to listeners. It might take mm-hmm. decades. It might take mm-hmm. even longer. So it's interesting that like. Lost and found, despite its long gestation, eventually it's out, and it's 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 something that people can 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 get their hands on, and yeah, hear these 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 songs that your dad was working on that were so important to him in his final mm-hmm. days. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, so after uh, his friend John Lennon's death in 1980, your father dedicated himself to to gun control measures. He was really it was a very personal crusade for him. Which kind of corresponds with him uh, more or less retiring from music. Is that right? Yeah, um, that all happened around the same time. So after John Lennon's murder, 
my dad became passionately interested in advancing gun control in the U.S. And he founded an organization and was lobbying members of Congress and um, was was going out. And um, we talked about how he didn't perform live for most of his career. But at this stage, when he was advocating for gun control, he would make appearances at places like Beatle Fests. And he would get up on stage and uh, he would sing a song with the house band and he would just talking about gun control and get get donations. Um, yeah. So this was a huge focus of his life. You, if you see pictures of him from this period, he's often wearing a little pin on his lapel um, with a, a handgun with a, a red slash through it. And, yeah, that's right. Um, and that's he became right. very well versed on the topic. We talked earlier about how he was interested in the law. So when you hear him expound on the topic, he really was well informed and passionate. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, I think it speaks to, um, like you said, it, this was very personal for him to the point that he he would be willing to to make appearances, things that he wasn't comfortable with. This was a real. This came seems like it was motivated very much right from the very very center of his heart. You know this mm-hmm. this cause, mm-hmm. but but he was interested. His his political interests and leanings are 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 very fascinating. Your dad was pretty obsessed with Watergate, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, Watergate was obviously a huge story uh, while my dad was um, in that earlier phase of his career and first gaining popularity. And he was fascinated by it. He attended one of the Watergate hearings in person with my mom. Um, And he also, if you look at the cover for his record, A Little Touch of Schmilson in the Night, which is this beautiful record of standards of the Great American Songbook, his photo on the cover, he has a couple lapel pins again. One of them is my brother, Zach, a picture of him as a little boy. And the other one is a picture of um, Frank Willis. I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right. Um, he was the security guard at the Watergate office complex who first reported the break-in, who discovered the break-in that led to the whole scandal. Um, and so, yeah, a little, little nod to that, to to one of the heroes of the, the Watergate story. There's a YouTube video where uh, he's that that kind of again mashes up the uh, Nixon a Nixon speech or him him I think news of him resigning with some of your dad's stuff. So it seems like that's such a that's it, I I went and watched that. It was it was wild and such yeah. a, such an interest such an interesting thing for him to be. Every like you said, everybody was obsessed with it in those days. It was certainly a big story. But your dad mm-hmm. he he really had a lot of interest with it to the point that. Like you said, he and he and your mom went and watched one of the hearings, which is wild. And I think that was technically on their honeymoon that they went to that Watergate hear- hearing. I'll have to <laughs> check with my mom, but I believe it was around that, that time. That's so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go watch this watershed moment in democracy together. Well, that's yeah, yeah. Before we before we wrap things up, uh, something that's also very interesting about Lost and Found is um, it features a Yoko Ono cover. It's got it's got a, a really nice cover of "Listen, the Snow Is Falling." Mm. Um, and your father was part of a great tribute album to Yoko too. Every man has a woman, which features Elvis Costello and Roberta Flack and Roseanne Cash and and others. I wonder, did did your dad and Yoko keep in touch at all after John's passing? Yeah, they they did keep in touch, and he covered multiple of her songs over the years for that tribute record, um, and was very involved in the production of that and in the promotion of it as well. And yeah, they they did. Um, they did keep in touch. To me, it's she's one of the great. Uh, um, her 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 the role she plays in the Beatles story is often there's there's often kind of like a reductive quality to the way people talk about Yoko. Um, 
but I think that both as an artist and as a as a creator, you know, she's just endlessly fascinating. And I think that it really speaks to your dad's um, character and his adventurousness musically that he was so, yeah, that he was covering her music, that he was engaging with it, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a way that uh, a lot of, frankly, a lot of other people didn't, you know, or peers didn't, they didn't get what Yoko was doing. Your dad yeah. seems like he got that, you know? Well, he respected her. And we talked earlier about him respecting other artists. Once he admired an artist, um, you know, he treated their work with reverence. Well, so as we as we wrap things up, I wonder if you could tell me uh, maybe one of your favorite deep cuts from from your dad's discography. Obviously, there are so many so many songs to choose from, and so many well known ones to choose from. But I wonder if you had a little uh, a little uh, you know secret secret recommendation for us. I mean, there's so many. Uh, great moments in this catalog and i really encourage people to to go through and you know click on those songs on spotify that you've never heard of because you're going to find some gems um real briefly we, we were talking about the the pussycat sessions earlier there's a demo from those sessions um his cover of save the last dance for me um that is just heartbreakingly beautiful um so i definitely recommend people check that one out and, and the other one I like to call people's attention to is the song that Jimmy Webb wrote um, called Campo de Encino or Campo de Encino as my dad pronounces it in his cover version. Um, <laughs> and uh, have you, have you heard that song by the way? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, that's, it's this interesting song because it's, it speaks to that dichotomy we were talking about earlier where you've got uh, the melody going one way and the lyrics going another way. This song is a kind of a joke song. The lyrics are supposed to be funny, kind of skewering um, life in the valley in the 70s. And um, But my dad sings it as sincerely as you can imagine. Just this gorgeous emotional rendition of funny lyrics. Um, and so I like it for that reason. I just think it's one of his better vocal performances, just very moving. And I also like it for the backstory, um, his friendship with Jimmy Webb and the story that Jimmy tells is he wrote that song kind of to prove to my dad that he could write a song with humor because my dad was teasing him uh, that he didn't, he didn't understand humor or something like that. So I love that he, he wrote that and my dad recorded it. Um, Just kind of a nice testament to their friendship. Yeah, I love that as a back and forth. Um, well, Olivia, it's been so much fun hanging out with you talking about these great tunes and, and getting to hear these stories. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and I really thank you for doing all the awesome work that you're doing with the Nilsson Archive. And um, where where should people follow you online so that they can keep up to date on everything that's happening in the Nilsson camp? Well, you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at official Nilsson. Um, and then TikTok, I believe the handle is at the official Nilsson. Um, but we put a lot of stuff out there, just, you know, pictures you probably haven't seen, songs you probably haven't heard, stories. Um, and it's it's really fun to engage with people there. So I encourage people to, to go find us there. Well, absolutely. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll be able to talk you into coming back and doing another one of these with us in the future. But we really appreciate it. And like I said, everybody here at Wastoids, Sam and I especially, Sam, who the you know producer of this show and and uh just obsessed with with his tunes and it was a real great thing to bond over with and uh, bond over the two of us and we're just so thankful that you that you took the time and i really appreciate it no this was fun thank you
Olivia Nelson here on Wastoids. This has been Nelson Talks Nelson. Our executive producer and composer is Sam Means. I'm Jason Woodbury. I wrote and produced the show. Our art is by the incredible Madeline Stefanik. Check her out at www.madstefanik.com. You can find more podcasts, videos, and information about our four-episode TV show with Night Flight Plus by visiting us over at wastoids.com. Want to get in touch and share your favorite Nilsson song or anecdote, or really want to get in touch and share anything with us? Give us a ring at 1-877-WASTOIDS and listen for your message in a future podcast presentation. Have you ever gone to the record store and picked up a record and got it home, put it on your turntable, only to find that it's all hissy and it's got pops and there's smudges all over it? It's a real drag. That's the thing about vinyl. It sounds its best when you're working with a clean record. And that is why I dig Groove Washer. Their products are designed and made in Kansas City, Missouri, right here in the U.S., by people who are as passionate about music and vinyl as you are. Groove Washer offers everything you need to ensure your records sound their best, with cleaning fluids for every available cleaning method, be it manual, vacuum, or ultrasonic if you want to go real in on it. We've got a special deal for Waste Toys listeners, too. Head over to www.groovewasher.com and enter the discount code WASTOIDS10 to get 10% off your record cleaning supplies. That's WASTOIDS10 in all caps. Enter that at checkout at GrooveWasher.com and get 10% off everything you need to keep your vinyl clean and pristine. Thanks, Groove Washer. Mm-hmm.